0: head over to theinforium.com slash nebula to sign up now. Hey what is going on guys? So today I am bringing you yet another article from the College Info Geek blog. Now this article is called Achievement Addiction, How to Separate Yourself from Your Accomplishments. It was written by my good friend Ransom Patterson who you can follow over on Twitter at Ransom Patterson and is narrated by yours truly. If narration just isn't your thing and you actually want to read this article or you just want to check it out after listening to the narration and I definitely recommend checking out some of the links in the article which have some external resources that you can benefit from then you can find it over at College infogeekcom slash achievement dash addiction. So let's get into it. I have a problem that I've struggled with for years, and it's this. I often feel that I'm only as good as what I accomplish. Essentially, my worth as a person is tied up in what I do, with what I produce, and how many times I win. Like that cheeky Guitar Hero 3 loading screen once said, You're only as good as your last gig, and your last gig sucked. Now, I know that's supposed to be tongue-in-cheek and completely sarcastic, but I actually feel like that sometimes, and it's hard to get over it. And I don't know if there's an existing term for this issue, so I've gone ahead and coined my own achievement addiction. Now, I know I'm not alone in battling achievement addiction, lots of other people deal with it, and I suspect that you might be one of them. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with being motivated and driven. It's completely okay to want to do lots of awesome things. Normally, it's actually an advantage. However, this ambition becomes a problem when we can't separate ourselves from what we do. When we tie up our personal worth with our external accomplishments, we're always going to end up dissatisfied. So in today's article, I'm going to explore the root of this problem, as well as what we can do to break free of it. And before we can get over achievement addiction, we first need to understand what causes it. Now, the specific causes depend on the person, but I've identified a few that I think apply to most people, including number one, school, with the grades and tests and prizes, all the assessments that go on in school. Number two, the visible accomplishment culture of the internet. And number three, using the wrong metrics to evaluate success. Now, how much each area contributes to the problem varies from person to person, but I suspect that all of them play a part in each of our lives. And in my own life, I've definitely observed all three factors at work. So let's address each in turn, beginning with school. Achievement addiction begins in childhood. From the first year of school, we encounter a focus on achievement, on the production of results. School is, essentially, a culture of assessment. Now, in theory, this is a positive. Children, in particular, need specific, pressing motivation, as they're unlikely to have their own intrinsic motivation at first. Consequently, most schools place a lot of emphasis on grades, on numerical rankings of children by intellectual ability. This also arises from an attempt by schools to quantify teacher and student performance since objective metrics look great on paper and are much easier to show as a justification for either increasing or cutting funding to a particular school. Again, numerical measures aren't inherently bad. It's difficult to improve what you can't measure. The problem is that numerical measures of children's ability aren't absolute. Early on, we learned that our grades are in fact relative, that we can use them to compare our performance to our fellow classmates. As such, it's easy to develop the mindset that the higher our grades are, the more we matter as people." Many schools attempt to counter this mindset by teaching about the importance of self-esteem and self-love, but the overall message gets confusing when most schools simultaneously put so much emphasis on grades and test scores. And crucially, these scores are usually tied to a very narrow measure of intelligence, mainly mathematical and verbal reasoning, and they often neglect other areas such as artistic or emotional intelligence. Further exacerbating the problem are the incentives that some parents and teachers use. If your parents reward high grades with a new bike and they punish poor grades with no TV and video games, the message that they're sending is that you're only as good as what you accomplish, and only what you accomplish as judged according to a very narrow form of assessment. And this only worsens as you enter high school. At that point, you encounter yet more standardized assessments in the form of the ACT, the SAT, your AP exams, and your scores in these exams, plus the grades in your classes, affects where or in some cases, even if, you can attend college. And all throughout this process, your school is continually ranking students according to these measures. The goal of such systems, of course, is not to say that students with a higher rank are somehow quote-unquote better than their peers of a lower one, but it's so easy to feel that way when rankings are celebrated in the form of commendations such as valedictorian, honor roll, and other things. And by the time you enter college, it's easy to carry this mindset with you. It's easy to internalize it. Now, college tends to value grades a little bit less, but there's still honor societies and GPAs. Additionally, the claims about the effect of your grades on your future continue with warnings that you'll never get a good job without a perfect GPA, which is simply not true. Overall, with the way the school system is structured, it's easy to see why we end up feeling that we're only as good as what we achieve. Now, if school is the first source of achievement addiction, the internet is the place that reinforces it. Take social media for example. The entire language of social networking sites revolves around approval or disapproval. Likes, shares, upvotes, and favorites all combine to form a collective evaluation of everything we put on the internet. Because everything is rated, the impulse is then to filter and curate everything that you put online, to craft an image of yourself as someone who goes cool places, who does cool things, and eats beautiful food. Collectively, this is known as image crafting. Inherently, there's nothing wrong with being able to like or upvote things. It's an easy shorthand for expressing empathy or conveying joy that something brings us. The problem comes when we associate those online achievement markers with our real-life worth. We become, in some, only as good as the number of friends, followers, and likes we have online. And if you're creating things and putting them on the internet, it can be even worse. Instead of evaluating your writing or your artwork, songs, and videos by the amount of effort you put into them and your own artistic taste you can easily fall into the trap of judging it only by its online approval and reach. Worse still, you fixate on the one trolling commenter who has nothing nice to say, and you ignore the dozens of positive comments. You gloss over the 1,000 likes, and you fixate on that one pesky dislike. The internet provides a powerful, addictive feedback loop of novelty and approval. At no other time in history could you see, in real time no less, the approval and disapproval of hundreds of thousands of strangers. And we weren't built to handle this, yet we can't look away. And that brings me to the final common issue of achievement addiction, which is our obsession with metrics and markers that frankly don't matter all that much. Now, from a biological perspective, an organism's success comes down to just one thing, and that's passing on its genes. To accomplish this, a few other factors such as adequate nutrients, safety, and overall healthiness are usually necessary. At the most basic level, though, these are the only indicators of success that matter. In prehistoric times, as far as we know, these were much the same needs that humans had. Satisfy all of them, and you were by any reasonable standard living a successful life. For many people in the modern world, however, success is much murkier. Most of us already have enough resources to survive and pass on our genes, so how are we supposed to measure success? With this confusion, it's easy to turn to things such as money earned, possessions acquired, and impressive things accomplished as our markers. These specific accomplishments vary from person to person, but they tend to be extrinsic, visible, public, and easily quantifiable. And this makes sense. After all, it's easy to evaluate your success by winning a prestigious award or receiving a raise in pay. These are things that you can easily point to and say, look, I did something. In contrast, it's much harder to point to things such as personal growth or improved relationships with your friends and family or increased life satisfaction. These are intangible and they're hard to quantify. No wonder, then, that we get so wrapped up in the outward accomplishments, for they are the things that we can easily check off a list and chart on a graph. Now I'm not opposed to quantifying goals or tracking numbers. In areas where you need to clearly measure progress, they are invaluable. For any goals that are related to skills or business growth, for instance, I always use objective metrics. Outside of those areas, though, quantitative measures are a recipe for dissatisfaction. You could always make more money. There will always be more awards to win. And since none of us scores perfectly on every single exam, there's always an extra point that you could have earned. If these are the ways in which you measure the worth of your life, then nothing is ever going to be enough. Furthermore, chasing extrinsic success becomes particularly foolish when you take a longer view of history. Odds are, most people aren't going to remember you 100 years from now. In general, the further back you go in history, the fewer people from a given era are remembered today. Arguably, this is due in part to the increasing scarcity of written records as you go back, but even accounting for that, consider how many people from 100 years ago are household names today. Now go back 200, 300, 500, 1,000, 2,000. How many names have made it to the present? Compared to the estimated 107,602,707,791 people who have ever lived, the number still remembered today is infinitesimal. Could you really be one of those people? Yeah, it's possible, but it shouldn't be the goal of your life. Fame is fickle and arbitrary anyway. So stop worrying so much about trying to make your mark on history, and just take some comfort in the knowledge that you'll likely be forgotten, just like the rest of us. There are much better ways to use your brain power than using it to worry. Now up to this point, this article has been kind of depressing. I've spent all this time pointing out all the problems, the way we evaluate our lives, and... Bringing up the fact that we'll all likely be forgotten isn't much of a comfort either, I know. Luckily, there are other healthier ways to evaluate our lives. Now, these might be a lot harder to quantify, but if you consider these things, you won't just feel more satisfied. You'll also have a clear idea of where to focus your self-improvement efforts. So, here are a few ways to evaluate your life. Number one, gauge how happy you are. Now, happiness is notoriously difficult to quantify, though some researchers are definitely giving it the old college try. So, to make things easier in the meantime, I prefer not to ask how happy am I, but rather, how unhappy am I? It's often much easier to tell when you're unhappy since it tends to feel painful and urgent. From there, you can try to pinpoint the causes of that unhappiness and start to be happy more often. Obviously, you can't make every single moment of your life happy all the time, but you do want to focus on how happy you are in general and aim to maximize that. Number two, evaluate the quality of your relationships. And I don't just mean romantic relationships, though those can have a big effect on your happiness. I also mean the relationships with your family and your friends, your classmates, and even your coworkers. Humans truly are social creatures. And a surefire way to be happier and incidentally healthier is to build meaningful, positive relationships with other people. Number three, look at how you give back to the world. When you give, you get a lot more back than you'd imagine. Along with being grateful, being generous is an important ingredient in living a satisfied, happy life. And there are a lot of ways to give back. Obvious things include donating your money or volunteering, but you can also give back by using the skills and knowledge you have to create things that help other people. For example, one of the people who has helped me most in my life is a guy named Leo Babauta, and he's done it just by writing down his thoughts on his site Zen Habits. It's been incredibly helpful, and I know that he's doing it in part just to give back to the world. And number four, notice how often you have moments of wonder. This is a concept borrowed from Tim Urban of Wait But Why, who calls these whoa moments. And a whoa moment is one of those times where you pause to realize just how amazing it is to be alive at all, to marvel at what a privilege it is. Woe moments help you to maintain a sense of wonder, which is essential to keeping life from becoming dull or monotonous. And side note here: despite many practice takes, I am not able to say woe as well as Keanu Reeves can. But thank you for putting up with my attempts. Now, to make it easier to notice these aspects of your life, I recommend trying out something like meditation or some similar mindfulness practice. Doing something like this helps you to get out of autopilot, and it helps you evaluate how you feel about your life from moment to moment. Now, to wrap up this narration, I wanna make sure that I'm not giving you the wrong impression here. I'm definitely not saying you shouldn't be ambitious or driven. Seriously, go build a space elevator, become the first underwater knife-thrower, or just go ace all your classes. I really don't wanna discourage you from doing any of those things. Rather, I'm just trying to say that you should maintain a distinction between your success in work and your success as a person. Your work is important, but it isn't your whole life. If you fail a test or even an entire class, That doesn't mean that you're a failure as a person. And likewise, you don't become more valuable as you gain status symbols, such as awards or social media followers. The reactions of other people and the structure of society may seem to say otherwise, but when your values are solidly grounded, you'll be able to ignore all of that. And this stuff is hard, but it's essential to being satisfied and to reducing unnecessary stress that can keep you from moving forward. So I hope that listening to this post has helped you realize the importance of separating who you are from what you accomplish, as well as point you to some alternative ways to evaluate your life. Guys, thanks so much for listening to this narration. I really hoped you enjoyed it. And once again, if you want to read this article or find any of the links that go to external resources, you can go find it at collegeinfogeek.com achievement addiction. Also, if you happen to be enjoying these narrations or the podcast in general, one way you can help support the show is by going onto iTunes and leaving a rating and review if you haven't done so already. Doing that helps iTunes bump the show up the rankings and it shows it to more people. So it's definitely a great way to help the show grow. But seriously, thank you so much for listening in general, and I will see you in the next podcast episode. Stay cute.